Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. At the beginning of each year, we have a young adult event called Revive in Connecticut. This year, Leah Franzik was one of the workshop leaders. Her topic was detoxing your brain, and I asked her to come on Restitutio to share with you what she learned in studying this topic. This is so important for us as Christians because God expects us to be able to control our thinking. How do you get rid of toxic thoughts? Leah is going to help us think through not only how negative thoughts affect us, but then also in part two, how to combat them. Now, before we get into this, I want to make a distinction. The mind, as we are using it in this discussion, is your mental state, your consciousness, memories, feelings, and so on, where you do your thinking, whereas the brain is the physical organ in your head that makes the mind possible. Obviously, these two are linked, but they aren't necessarily the same, and Leah draws a strong distinction between them in this conversation. We'll get into this more, but I just wanted to point this out before we got started. Here now is Interview 55, Detoxing the Brain with Leah Franzik. Welcome to Restitutio, Leah. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me here. Today we are talking about the brain and specifically detoxing your mind and a verse that really frames a lot of this discussion is Philippians 4.8, where it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so what I see in the scriptures is a, a good deal of emphasis on our thought life, that we are expected to control our thinking and to bring God into our minds and be able to have positive healthy thoughts however in our toxic world it's easy to get into toxic mindsets and patterns and so i'm very interested to hear this research that you've done leah and to see how god designed the brain as well as how a basic understanding of that can help us control our thinking so that we can have godly thoughts and and healthy thoughts so talk to us about the brain a little bit the brain is is separate from the mind and and, and the okay. brain is very fascinating and i mean we read through scriptures and there's a a lot that talks about you know where our thoughts go that is where the man goes and i think that to be very interesting and in an age of a lot of uh, autoimmune disease uh, such as alzheimer's being on the rise and lou garrett's and uh, there's there's a number of diseases out there, plus um, a lot of neurological diseases out there, or we just have you know ADD and the the increase of medications. Um, how much of this is in our control, and where is it starting from? And a lot of it is starting in our mind. As far as the brain goes, the brain is really fascinating for multiple reasons. I've always been really fascinated by the the brain. And, um, I did take 
anatomy and physiology last year. But aside from that, I, I work for a doctor and we work with patients and uh, the topic of cranial nerves and the structure of the brain comes up a lot, even dealing with the rest of the body. How does your study of the anatomy and physiology of the brain inform you on how thought patterns work? Okay. This was something I did a workshop and this was something a lot of the science I got was from different scientists and a lot of information I've learned is from Dr. Carolyn Leaf. So I'm definitely not a neuroscientist by any means. This is just an information that has been informative to me and it's really helped me with my own toxic way of thinking. And I don't think we like to admit that we are toxic thinkers, um, whether if we're Christians or not, we tend to think we're all good people, but we sometimes become prisoners and limit ourselves because of where our minds go and especially in toxic thinking patterns. So something that was really interesting to me is, so we're all made of cells and, you know, a, a blood cell, looks a certain way and a brain cell looks a certain way. A neuron is a brain cell which looks like a tree. And I thought it was quite interesting to see the growth of a neuron and it it just branches out, branches out like a tree. An example she had was, uh, which I, I brought into the workshop, was a dark, wiry, gnarly looking tree. And then I brought in a bunch of plants, real plants, so to kind of represent life because that is kind of what's going on in our mind on a cellular level. And the science and under microscopes, you can actually watch memories be formed in the brain and we are constantly in thought. We have, you know, four to seven thoughts at any given moment. If you times that by a minute, times that by an hour, by a day, by a month, by a year, that's a lot of thoughts coming into our mind. And we are told to take our our thoughts into captivity. What does that look like? And what does that mean? And what is happening to these neurons in our brain? Some will come, some will grow, some won't. Some will make these synapse connections and proteins will grow. And some really kind of won't. They might drift. Like you, you're not going to remember every single thing you come across, like every name and everything because you'd go crazy. Um, we're designed to forget things too. But there are memories. Um, we, we call these, so we'll say a thought. I will say a thought is also a memory. Some of them grow. Maybe it's, um, uh, so Dr. Carolyn Leaf worked with a lot of patients with you know PTSD. So maybe a traumatic experience happened. Traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another. So something that happened to me when I was a little girl may seem silly to you. But for me, it's maybe a memory I've replayed over in my head over and over and over and over. And it's kind of slowly changed and defined who I am. And then we're composed of so many of these. I mean, billions, trillions beyond that. And there's just we have enough space in our brain to hold hundreds of years of memories on a cellular level. So the ones that we are feeding are the ones that are growing. The branches, they grow and they grow and they're called dendrites. The dendrites grow and they grow. And if, if they're negative, it's not the way our brains really designed to be. We are not designed to be negative. What you're saying is that there is a physical component 
to our thoughts. Yes. Located in our brains. Located in our brains. Yes. That's fascinating. Just that thought alone, you know, that there, there are physical changes happening in our brains depending on memories that we have and what you mentioned there, specifically traumatic memories where uh, what you said is they define you. And I think we've all had experiences like that where bat, something bad happened or even something good happened. And then that informs how we think about that particular subject or situation going forward, sometimes not in a good way either. So you're saying that this is actually physical. This isn't just sort of like software. I mean, there's actually a, a hardware component here that represents these, these thoughts that we have. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and for me, I think, uh, visually seeing some of these things, I mean, it's a podcast, so <laughs> I can't show you anything, but to actually see on a cellular level, what I'm made up of really blows my mind. So it's, it's say, Oh yeah. Okay. Think positive and put a smile on your face and oh, it's okay, whatever. But for me, because I, I do enjoy science and I do enjoy learning about the body and I've had my own personal health issues that I've been told by doctors I would never overcome. And there was something deep within me, very deep, that just was said, no, this just can't be true. I feel as though I'm designed in a body that is designed to want to heal itself. Would you be comfortable sharing about that experience, the one that you mentioned to me? I think we're in like a small group together. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was a brain thing, right? That was, that, uh, that was about the brain, yeah. So when I was young, I had um, a seizure um, at the age of six. I had a partial seizure. My leg would move a lot. And anyway, I was on medication. And then the following year, I had another seizure. It was a different form of a seizure. So seizures are were a form of electricity and stuff, and electrical signals are just not being sent at the right moments. So anyway, I had a seizure that affected the right, I'm sorry, the left hemisphere of my brain, but I just kind of zoned out. And I guess I was vomiting a lot, and I, I zoned out. I woke up in the hospital, but my mom noticed I was just kind of out of it and not as responsive or able to answer to things as quickly as I usually would. They put me on medication and, and I would get EKGs done, you know, or they measure your brain waves and measure to see if there was seizures that took place. And I found out as an adult <laughs> that that particular seizure had caused brain damage in the left hemisphere of my brain. And I didn't know that. My parents never told me that, which was probably a blessing. My father is a preacher and he's supported by churches around the country. And at that time, there was a lot of people praying for me. A uh, year after, they did a brain scan and they were shocked that it, as, it was as if nothing had happened to my brain. My brain was healed, like I said, as if nothing had happened at all. Now, you were a kid when all this was happening and your memory of it is obviously going to be very different from your parents' memory of it because they were aware of the brain damage. Mm -hmm. And then th you're saying that they had the scan a year later, but they never told you about either one till you were an adult. I knew I'd be going to the doctors, but I don't have vivid memory. I mean, I more remember the memories of how kids treated me when I came back to school, uh -huh. stuff like that, which some of that was, I can still remember things that kids said. Like, so for a kid, that was my perspective of the situation. 
but my parents did not tell me I had brain damage. Now, the left hemisphere? It's your more mathematical, analytical uh-huh. form of thinking. How do you know that this part of your brain works well? I still don't. <laughs> no, I just, <laughs> I don't. Um, I mean, did, did you graduate from school? Uh, did you, I mean, just for the listeners who don't just know for, you, yeah. I, mean, I know that side works well, but. I mean, honestly, I was never a, a science person. Uh, I, so that's what I told my parents later. I was like, that's why I was never good at math or science. They're like, no, no, that's no excuse. <laughs> I actually was in college at the age of 16. I was full-time college student. I have, uh, I did get an associate's at a young age. I have, my undergraduate work was in education and I have a master's degree as a literacy specialist. And And then after all that, (laughs) you went back to school for anatomy and physiology and did you pass or fail that class? I got an A in the class. You got an A t- in the class. <laughs> I was teaching so. the tutoring. I was running the tutoring lab by the end of it. And I, I took my the knowledge that I learned as a reading teacher to read informational and expository text. I figured if I can teach my students how to read informational text, I'd used all those strategies that I used on them to learn anatomy and physiology. And uh, But I've, I've always read a lot about the body just because of my own personal health has been wavery in my childhood. And I know on a cellular level that we are a whole new person every seven years. Things break down, new cells form. And I love the beauty of that. I love the beauty that we can keep reinventing ourselves physically. Um, So that's kind of been something I've been chasing after for a while. And my health is in a much better place now than it was even three years ago or two years ago, I didn't really think so much of the mind and the brain and brain healing and mind healing that that too can be cleaned and that too can be healed. You're living proof, right? You're living proof of (laughs) neuroplasticity that your brain can change, that it can go through seizures and damage and also go through healing and that it is not fixed that, you know, I think the traditional wisdom, the traditional approach to any kind of brain problem that people perceive or mind problem that they perceive is that there's some sort of pill they can take that will fix it or will alleviate the symptoms. Of course, the problem with all the the psychotropics is that they have side effects, right? And uh, the dosage is always just a trial and error kind of situation. So, you're saying that there's a whole nother way of approaching this. Yes, and I think it's the way that we were originally designed to approach it. And and I'm not going to get on here and say, never take medication, never do this, never do that. But I could be on a lot of medications now if it were up to the medical community. I finally said no. I stopped for just certain reasons. And just deep, deep within me, I knew that I was in a body that was designed to flourish and not be dependent on a chemical substance. Okay. What else do you want to talk about? On a neurological level, what, what things are looking like. This is something I just want to share with you. I've been on, a, on, on my own healing process with this whole detoxifying the brain. I just want to share this part with you from a book called Switch on Your Brain by Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Um, she says, in the brain, automatization physically looks 
like lots more tree branches than are thick and well-established, with many branches interconnecting with other thought networks. And if you could zoom in closely to the connections the branches grow from, you'd see little things called spines. These spines change shape from a bump at around seven days. This is as you're going through a detox of the brain. To a lollipop shape at around 14 days to a mushroom shape at around... 21 days as the thought becomes stronger. This is because the proteins change progressively by day 21, with peak changes beginning at 7 and 14 days to become self-sustaining proteins, which are like long-term memory. So the reason I'm sharing this is because the body is not designed to heal overnight. The body is not going to design over the night. The brain neurons are not going to be healed overnight. This is something, if this is a memory or this is, we have probably, and have a lot of toxic thoughts, just one alone takes time to heal from. And that's something that I think we want a quick fix. We live in a McDonald's, a drive through Starbucks, Instagram, Twitter world, and this is not the way God designed us. This is not how we are designed. We are designed to be a little bit slower to heal. And that's okay, don't get frustrated if you feel like you still having this toxic thought after a day or so. It took a long time. It's been growing for a long time. It's going to take a long time to not only destroy it, but it's going to take more time to develop positive thoughts to replace that and to make that now part of your way of thinking. Okay, well, let's let's talk about your own experience a little bit. Okay. So I have toxic ways of thinking too, but what got to the root of it, the further I came along in this process of slowly working on my toxic thought, there does come a day when she explains to you and she, uh, and I've gone through this 21 day detox. um, So your brain structure is changing and there is a point when you kind of ask yourself, where is this coming from? What is the deeper root of this? Maybe every day you wake up and you think you're stupid. I'm stupid. I'm stupid. I'm stupid. But where is that coming from? Sometimes we might have a surface level, I want to say surface level toxic thought, but it's coming from something deeper that may have happened maybe earlier on in life. And for whatever reason, I have asked myself why these thoughts come into my mind. Um, And there is a a deep feeling of just not feeling like I was enough, not feeling like I deserved quote unquote, the good life or whatever, even though I would say I'd studied and I've had some fallouts, well, not fallouts, but with teaching, um, being hired and then other people getting jobs and then being let go because of budget cuts and, it's been really exhausting over the years or, you know, with relationships or whatever. And I just keep thinking, I'm just, I'm just not enough. I'm just not enough. I'm, I'm not good enough. And then, but I'm really well studied and I connect really well. I, so it's just been like this self-hate thought process, even though I might say everything's fine. It's, it's not, it was just a, a face-to-face kind of conversation I had to have with myself and, realizing that I haven't been as nice to myself as I am to everybody else. And I had to kind of ask myself why. And and now also knowing the adverse effects of toxic thinking, like that it actually can cause me brain damage. So when we have these toxic thoughts, it comes into our body, our mind, our brain, it starts to grow 
because you might not catch it. And if it's there, it continues to grow. And the body sees it as an infection because it's not designed to be there. Less than 5% of your your brain, your body can handle negative jealousy, rage, depression, anger. We were never designed to be that way. And so we, we people might laugh off the scriptures, like think about is good and wonderful. Think of, think of these things because that is how we were designed. We were designed to be in the place of peace and calmness and love. We were designed to love people. We are not designed to be negative. Our bodies can't handle it. So now when I think, oh, I'm thinking hateful thoughts about myself, I start physically seeing in my mind like this nasty, gnarly thing growing in me and that my body's attacking it like it would an infection. White blood cells actually go and attack and start to inflame it. And just like an infection or a virus, and it causes inflammation. And if this is a long-term toxic thought or memory, it causes so many problems throughout the body. We look at inflammation of the brain and all of the negative diseases associated with that or what takes ramifications in the body. Everything that happens in our body flows through us. Neurons, blood, blood throws through our brain. That blood goes through the rest of our body. We are so connected and it all starts where our thoughts are there. You have every moment you have choice. I have choice. I've realized I have a lot more choice than I have. I am not a victim. I can keep sitting around thinking negative things about myself, whatever it is, but it gets me nowhere really, really fast. And I don't want to wake up in five years having these same thoughts. I don't want to wake up in the same body in five years. I believe that as we get older, we should be continuing to thrive. There's people in countries 90 years old that are running faster than the 60 year olds. Our bodies are beautiful and God made us beautiful. And if you really look at the body, you design, you just realize how fascinating we are. We were told, you know, your body is a holy temple. And it's like, what does that mean? Like we might look at buildings or structures and people bow before them and just gawk at them. And so this is so great, but um, how much should we be really honoring this body, this tool that we've been given? And it's important to study the body. I think it's important to know what's going on in our body and to be the healthiest version of ourselves. because if we're not, how are we going to be helping others? I really appreciate how you exegeted Philippians 4.8, where a lot of people would say, oh, that is just a sheltered, naive, prim, Christian approach to life, you know, to just focus on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, almost like a weak-mindedness that people would say, oh, you Christians, you can't handle anything. You have to just focus on these these happy thoughts, right? Uh, but what you're, what you're saying is that far from that, this is actually how God designed us. We have a very limited tolerance for mental negativity. If we allow it in and we allow it to fester, that there will be physical consequences in our bodies that will result from these mental constructs, you know, and you think about our society, how people are stressed at their jobs, how people are inundated with polarized politics, how Hollywood turns out horror movies and other movies and shows that are designed to put negativity. I mean, what do we entertain ourselves with? 
murder mm-hmm. and robberies, people that are get really angry in a situation. You know, these these are the sorts of things that turn into big hit television shows. Our world is is sort of saturated with all kinds of negativity. Like when you read off your list there of hatred, jealousy, uh, what else was on there? Rage, worry, depression, doubt. Yeah, I yeah, mean, that's yeah. not a place we were designed to be in. Yeah. That's a good description of a good amount of, you know, just what comes at us every day from other people, from entertainment, from social media. There, there's a whole nut, there's a whole new genre of social media posts where it's, it's an outrage. It's a rant, you know, and somebody just vents their rage and then everyone cheers them on. And so this is, this is very much in our culture, very much surrounding us every day. So like, what is a person to do? Well, we have to somehow, first of all, put up some sort of boundaries around our own hearts so that we don't get just like overrun. But then when negativity does come within, like especially your example there, which is very common where people feel like they're not good enough. This is a very common train of thought that many of us deal with. It's very easy then when we have that idea in our heads that then we have confirmation bias. So what we do is we'll, we'll look through our lives at the various situations that arise during the course of a day, and we'll find reasons to, to confirm our belief about ourselves throughout our day. So we'll sort of like select through the day the various situations that will confirm what we believe, and that will strengthen the belief. And what you're saying is that this is causing this tree to grow in our brains, mm-hmm. this negativity, which then leads to all this other consequences, inflammation, and potentially disease. Yes. So we have our brain and we have a thought, and then a thought will trigger an emotion. So emotions develop in um, the amygdala. This is in your midbrain. The midbrain is very fascinating. A lot of our responses happen in midbrain. We have our pituitary gland, which which rests in, you know, a sphenoid bone and all that fight or flight actually clenching, gnashing our terrible teeth, um, quite literally can shift your sphenoid bone out of its place. It's like a bat shape in our face and the pituitary gland sits in there and they call that the master gland, which controls a lot of our hormones, which it can throw an array of things off, <laughs> how we respond to things, our body temperature, our sleep cycle, our, I mean, you name it. I mean, but the amygdala controls emotional responses and helps your brain store memories. Um, it works with the hippocampus and the hippocampus plays a role in memory, navigation, and emotional response. Those, this is where our memories, as far as science goes, <laughs> is where our memories are being stored they're seeing more that might be stored in other parts of our brain but what will we allow to be a memory what we what will we allow to be a thought in our mind i mean we all have memories and some trigger good emotion some trigger let's say toxic emotion i have this article that is called the neuroscience of changing toxic thinking but it says it takes a thought to spark an emotion or drive a decision to take an action or to take no action at all. And emotions give meaning to thoughts. They are the spark. And the words of neuroscientist Antonio Damasio are a telltale sign of consciousness. So we work in consciousness and subconsciousness. And But most of our 
thinking is done subconsciously. 90 to 99% of it is subconscious. Wow. Yeah. So our conscious maybe decision, I'm going to pick up my cup. I'm going to take a drink. That's within our conscious mind. But we are driven primarily by our subconscious, which I think is really fascinating. This is the, maybe the nonverbal part of us. This is, um, so the hardwired information is nonverbal as the body's operating system. Your subconscious came equipped with the knowledge and know how to operate the billions of cells of your body. Like you're not thinking how you're digesting your food. You're not thinking about things like that. On a primal level, there's a certain things we need to do for survival. For obvious reasons, it's not depend on language to instruct it. So then we have, it it's also knows your physical survival is connected to ways to your emotional survival. So if I said to Sean, I had something really nice. I could know right away how he feels before he could verbally respond to me or adversely, if I, if I said something really mean to him, I'd know with right away his reaction because the subconscious clicks in and then finally like a, a physical response will happen. It just, it's kind of interesting, but there is our emotional survival, like a, a baby knowing what it needs for survival. It needs love. It needs to be touched, needs affection. And then as an, an adult, you need more deeper, you know, emotional connections, intellectual, artistic, spiritual, And so I'm just going to share this. So it's safe to say that for the purpose of thriving, the mind of your body, your subconscious knows that you are a relationship being, that you are wired with carrying circuitry to empathetically connect. We are actually designed to connect to people. They, I've read in a few, in her book and other articles, there's something called mirror neurons that when we have empathy for someone else, our neurons in our body mirror the neurons of another person. Yeah, that's how empathy yeah, works. Exactly. So that's that's empathy on a cellular level. But this is how we are designed and that you are at heart wired to be a meaning-making being on a relentless quest to find purpose in contributing to life around you with your new um, attributes, gifts, talents. And uh, this is what we are wired to be doing on a subconscious level. So many of us, and this is Dr. Carolyn Leaf says, a lot of her patients were 95 plus percent of them the deepest issue when they got to the heart of it, because she's a cognitive neuroscientist um, or therapist, was that they didn't know their purpose. They didn't know their meaning. They didn't know their identity. When we do get to the root of a lot of things, we don't know who we are. We're trying to mimic something else that we've seen or experienced. We are made so perfectly. There's a blueprint that is exactly you. That's your exact identity. And you can't find that in other people. And especially people that are not uplifting or beneficial, or if you are not connected to the vine, you're not connected to your maker, you will just keep chasing yourself and not find yourself and find yourself depressed and angry and frustrated. Yeah, it's very common to construct identity, to find meaning in either one's career or one's relationships. These are stereotypically male and female types, but there's of course a lot of bleed over in both categories here. But regardless of where you find your identity and meaning, if it's not in God, if it's not in who God says you are as someone who is made in his image, as someone whom he loves, as someone 
with whom he wants to spend forever, then instead you attach your sense of meaning and satisfaction and purpose to instead something that is transient. And so like, let's say if my core identity is that I'm a father and I have four kids, I'm a good father and they love me and I love them. And that's where my, that's where my baseline identity is. Okay. Now what happens when one of my kids becomes a teenager and they say, I hate you, dad. How am I going to deal with that? Well, look, if that's my identity, I'm going to become that child's slave because that will destroy me. So I will do everything I can to cause that uh, child to feel affection for me and to say words that are affirming to my identity as a good father and to receive love from that child, which, in fact, a lot of times could be detrimental to the child's development because the child's seeking boundaries at that age and really needs to hit a wall at different times to hold that child in. So what I'm saying is that identity is too fragile, the relational one, whether it's a, a romantic partner, a spouse, a mm -hmm. child, whatever, or on the career side, well, what happens when somebody else gets promoted and you don't? Or what happens when your company goes out of business and you didn't do anything wrong? Or what happens when you did whatever it took to get ahead and one of those things you did along the way was illegal and you get busted and now you're in prison. Where's your identity then? It's too fragile to attach it to these other things. It has to be attached, like you said, to the vine, to Christ and through Christ to God, who is our maker that uh, we're made in his image, that he, he wants us. He wants to be our father. He wants us to be his children. And there, if you are in that relationship with the Almighty God through His Son, then you are in a stable identity, and you can get through different difficult times as they come up in life. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll listen to part two next week and get into some practical ways to overcome toxic thoughts. We've got a lot of feedback on the last episode with Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin on beating guns where they put forward the idea that Christians should love their enemies rather than prepare to kill them by purchasing guns. If you haven't heard it yet, you might want to check it out. It's Interview 54. Anyhow, I'd like to read out a comment and offer some response. Sadly, I can't read out everyone's comments, so I've chosen Sean's, not just because he has a great name, but because his comment covered a lot of ground. So here's what Sean wrote. He said, I gave them a listen, but I feel this was a very misleading interview overall by the authors. Maybe the book reveals more, but I doubt it. They have a few good points and some good things to address about investing in our local communities, which I hope they're also doing and not just spreading their message everywhere. I agree with that comment tons. I think we'd all be better off turning off the phones, social media, TVs for a few months, and then just interacting with our own actual neighbors for those few months. But Shane's false comparison, cross versus gun, the misuse of the word assault rifle, undefined but assuming they are referring to AR-15 style rifle, to act like it's a major plight on Americans when it's statistically insignificant threat to your life, and their gun stats are misleading. Most of the deaths are due to suicide or gang-related violence. And of all websites, even Vox is being more upfront with some of the stats lately. And then he cites an article on Vox. He goes on, Basically, your personal eating habits and living habits are a larger threat to your life than any gun in America, and then maybe car deaths from accidents soon after that. It's simply fear and emotions that drive these type of things. 
We just accept the reality of the risk of owning, driving cars at 70 miles an hour down the highway, yet many don't wish to accept the same reality with guns, especially in the media and social media. And it's perfectly understandable, yet not perfectly logical. I'm not going to convince a mom who lost her child to a crazy person with a rifle that shot up the school with the stats. I doubt I would be convinced either in her position. I really think their retort to, it's a heart problem, not a gun problem, is just a contradiction. If mostly professing Christians of any general form that try to follow, love your neighbor as yourself, own most of the U.S.'s guns, then the people who are actually harming people with guns in mass or by homicide are not Christians. So they do have a heart problem, while the Christians do or should not. I told you this was thorough. He, he goes on. The pro-life but supporting death penalty gun self-defense is another misunderstanding. I don't know for sure if that's intentional. Pro-life is for the innocent and weak and not for murderers and those who break the law. So just as trying to stop an innocent child in the womb from being slaughtered is pro-life, so is stopping a rapist murderer in the act. Pro-life defends the innocent, not the guilty, against God's moral law. The entire argument is just a denial of the Old Testament, too, which leads to the next problem. All right, let me just let me just pause him here and make a couple of comments, then we'll come back to Sean's comment. First of all, he is making a, a remark about the statistics of gun violence, that it's it's extremely unlikely that you'll be killed by gun violence in comparison to getting a car accident, and therefore we should not be concerned about this issue. Well, Sean, we are concerned. And we're concerned not not because of a, a percentage or a probability but because of the absolute horror of children getting shot while they're in school. The horror of people going to a concert in Las Vegas and getting shot. The horror of people going to a Walmart in El Paso, Texas and getting shot. Or to a bar in Dayton, Ohio at night and getting shot. Just for standing outside the front of it. Okay, I hear what you're saying. I think your point has statistical validity to it, but it's not sufficient to make us say, oh, well, there's no issue here at all. And there is an issue. And yeah, it is. It is unlikely that my kid's school would be the site of the next shooting. But you know what? I don't care. I I don't care that it's statistically unlikely. I want it to be and I'm sure other parents want their kids to be safe when they go to school. It should be a place where you shouldn't be worried about getting shot. You know, I recognize where you're coming from, and I appreciate it, but at the same time, I don't think it's a sufficient wave of the hand here to just say, oh, there's no gun problem in America. I think we do have a problem, and that's evidenced by the fact we've had nine mass shootings in 2019. Is that not a problem? As far as your your point on it's a heart problem, not a gun problem, that's actually not what they said. They said it is a heart problem and it is a gun problem. Um, The simple fact, and somebody else made a comment about a knife. The simple fact of the matter is if you come into a public space with a knife, I don't care how good you are, everyone's got a fighting chance to survive, to get out of there, to run away, to fight back. If you come in there with a semi-automatic weapon with a lot of ammunition, or multiple semi-automatic weapons, people do not have a chance to survive. They are just going to get mowed down by these weapons. You know why? Because these weapons are designed. They're designed to kill humans. 
A knife obviously has a lot of designs. It's designed, I, I use a knife tonight to cut a tomato, okay? Other knives are different, obviously. But my point is, the assault guns are not the same as a knife. They're not the same as a bolt-action weapon either, where there are a few seconds where the person is cocking the weapon and then you can run away. I mean, when I put myself in that scenario with with the semi-automatic weapons, whether we're looking at a school situation or a store situation or a concert or whatever, like, hey, there is just no way out. That's really a concern to many of us. Look, and like I said before, if you disagree with me on this issue, God bless you. You disagree. All right. I'm not I'm not trying to say you, you everyone has to agree with my same conclusions, but I, I would strongly urge you to consider that we do actually have a gun violence problem in America today and that and Sean's right to point out a lot of that is in gangs. A lot of that is in inner cities and a lot of those weapons are purchased because somebody goes into a gun show, they, they bring in their girlfriend, they bring in their friend with a clean record, and they go in and they buy a whole bunch of guns. And they come out and they sell them on the street. So, yeah, that's part of the picture, but obviously that's not the only focus here because we are talking about the mass shootings as well. All right, he goes on, Sean continues, we are red-letter Christians, and then says, that's just a joke. I'm not trying to be mean in saying that. It's just not something I could take seriously. That's like a willing Gnostic, cut up the scriptures, ignore what I don't like position. That's completely ahistorical. I know you're there to interview them and not to pressure them, but that's something I would have laughed at in person. When Jesus was walking, talking, and teaching in Israel, there was no New Testament. It was mostly the Old Testament and oral teachings in circulation. When Paul taught and wrote his letters, there was no New Testament. Paul said the scriptures were inspired for teaching, correction, and rebuke. And by that, he meant the Old Testament. That comment, they said it basically to ignore all the Old Testament and a few portions of the New Testament. There's no reasoning with that type of position if they don't accept what is agreed to as scripture, including both Old Testament and New Testament. There's tons more that's already been fleshed out, I believe, by me and many others regarding the contradictions of Jesus to the Old Testament Torah, so I'm not doing it here again. Overall, I expected a bit more for the two men to have researched a bit more, having written a book, but I was disappointed. No one has to own guns. No one is forcing someone to own guns. But no, the Constitution's Second Amendment doesn't only apply to single-shot musket guns. The amendment says arms. A simple reading of the influential writers of that time of its drafting show that they meant new technology with guns also, and many types of multi-shot guns existed at the time up to the Second Amendment's drafting. As someone said on a comment, I saw, quote, if the second only applies to muskets, then freedom of the press only applies to the printing press. That's a good point. He, continu- he concludes, I own guns, I hunt, and I carry. I hope I never have to use it against any person, but I've accepted the reality in carrying that I may have to one day. If a person cannot accept that reality, then they shouldn't carry. All right, Sean, well, thank you for writing in. And I, quite a few people who wrote in really, really resonated with Sean's position here. It's really so amazing to me how much of New Covenant theology that you know, I personally espouse and I laid out in our at the tail end of our theology class really plays into this issue. If you believe that you are under the old covenant, that you are a Sabbath keeper, that you are a Seventh-day Adventist, or somebody that believes that, 
you know, the Bible is basically flat, and that, you know, you can, you can pick up the Bible anywhere, and whatever you read, you have to do. You know, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but, you know, I, I'm trying to make a point here. The Bible is not a flat document. It's not a, a strict law code. You know, there, there's a narrative. There's a history of redemption, okay? And as a result of where things are at in Scripture, what you read applies or doesn't apply to you today. And so when I read the red letters, you know, basically what we're saying there is the words of Jesus, I look at that as New Covenant teachings that Jesus laid out, even while he was still technically under the Old Covenant, still obeying the laws that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus is at the same time preparing us, just like Moses prepared the Israelites. Before they entered into the covenant, he read to them the book of the covenant, and then he offered the sacrifice and sprinkled the people with the blood. So with Jesus, he's teaching the new covenant, and then he offers his own blood as the inauguration and ratification of that covenant, after which it's now in effect instead of the old covenant. And look, if you disagree with that, hey, I totally respect you, but this is certainly not an idiosyncratic view I'm laying out here. This is the majority view of, as far as I understand it, most Christians for most time, is that the Old Covenant came to an end at the cross, and the New Covenant was inaugurated, and at that point, we we no longer need to keep the Sabbath, keep kosher laws, and the Israelite civil law code, okay? Instead... What we are bound to is, as Paul lays out beautifully in his epistles, as he explains the theology very well to us, is this really spirit-led new reality that wasn't available to the public in the past. I mean, certainly the prophet, the priest, the king would have the spirit in order to guide them. But now it's to all daughters, all sons, old to young, to slave, to free— to everyone, the spirit's gone public, and now we have a new situation. And we see that spelled out over and over in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we, we also see how the Judaizers, those who were zealous to force new Christians to keep the law of Moses, how they were the opponents of the Apostle Paul as he traveled from place to place throughout his missionary journeys. Now, how, how does this all relate to guns and violence? It relates because... The teachings of Jesus are different than the teachings of the Old Covenant. Many of them are similar, many of them agree, and then a significant number of them are also different. I'm specifically referring to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. It is not loving to kill your enemy. This is this is what changed me on this subject. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting in my office, I was talking to a friend, and he said to me, Sean, how is it loving for you to kill your enemy? I mean, you can argue that it's, that it's loving to stop somebody from doing violence, that to rebuke somebody, to even incarcerate somebody is loving because what you're doing is you're, you're trying to bring about repentance in that person, but... As soon as that person is dead and they've got a bullet hole and their blood is leaking out on your floor, there's no love in that situation. Now, some people are going to come back and say, all right, Sean, but if I have to choose between some evil person 
and my family. I'm going to choose my family. Well, hey, if it comes down to that and you've got to make that choice, then you've got to make that choice. I believe that with every temptation, God will make a way of escape. And maybe you need to increase your faith to believe that God will actually be there in the crises of life. And that if you break your commitment on the one hand to cowardice, on the other hand to violence, then in that moment you can hear through the Spirit God directing you to do the third option, whatever it is. Obviously, I'm not putting forward a a path of passiveness. I think that's such a straw man is, is commonly brought up against courageous believers who believe in loving their enemies. We're not talking about passiveness. It's just a coincidence that the word pacifism sounds like passiveness, but pacifism actually is from the Latin, which means to make peace. That is really the goal. That is the example we have from Jesus. He he makes peace when Peter wields the sword uh, and, and misses the guy's head and just nips his ear. He makes peace through the cross. And look, if Jesus says to us, hey, guys, I'm coming back. I'm going to ride the white horse. I'm going to wage war, and I need you to be in my army. I'm going to be in his army. And if he says, hey, swing a sword, I will swing a sword. I'm not against violence. I am for following Jesus. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to turn the cheek. Paul echoed that when he said, never take vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God at the end of Romans 12. Peter said it, never return evil for evil. This is not like one verse here. I mean, this is this is a lot of verses to talk about it. And I, I really do encourage you to look at previous episodes where I and others have laid this out here. And in particular, I would strongly recommend, if you have not yet listened to it or watched it on YouTube, there is a phenomenal debate called It's Just War. And there you will get a classic just war defense juxtaposed against a very Anabaptist, Sermon on the Mount approach to this whole issue. And Anabaptist theology recognizes the validity of the governments of this land to use violence on the, on the side of justice, but it doesn't recognize that Christians can participate in that. And um, so I, and I just wanted to lay that out a little bit. I'm, I'm sure a number of you will, uh, will disagree with my New Covenant theology, and some others of you maybe will disagree with my interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount. But hey, unless I see or hear or read something that makes more sense and that fits in historically and biblically in a better way, then this this is where I'm at right now. And it's really interesting that on Restitutio, I have brought this subject in Podcast 15, A Theology of Nonviolence. Podcast 67, It's Just War Debate, that I just referred to. Offscript 38, Killing in War, A Christian View of Violence. Offscript 43, Can Christians Use non-lethal violence, Q&A. So that is one, two, three, four episodes so far, and nobody has commented, nobody had, but the moment the G word comes up, guns, suddenly now, now everyone's into it. Now everyone's got an opinion, everyone wants to, so I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to make of that, but it really is obviously a polarizing issue today, and I think, I think there is a strong Christian position on this. So I'd love to hear more from you, and I uh, hope to respond to some other of these comments that have already come in in our episode next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next week where we have part two on detoxing the brain with Leah Franzik. 
In the meantime, just remember the truth has nothing to fear.